Well, good morning. Um, I have a uh, couple of announcements before we get to our regularly scheduled program. Uh, the first one is this. I don't think it's going to surprise too many people because some people have already been uh, asking me about it, but we are adding a second service as a church. Amen. Amen. That is worth celebrating, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But as of uh, December 5th, Sunday, December 5th, instead of being a one-service church that meets at 10 a.m., we're going to be a two-service church that meets at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. That begins on Sunday, December 5th. So just real quickly, let me explain, um, first off, why we're doing this. Um, the answer is real, r- remarkably simple. It's because our vision as a church, and we stole this from Jesus Christ, we didn't have to make it up, we just looked at his test and copied his answer, Our vision as a church is to see lives transformed by Jesus. So we could stay here, uh, but if you've been around here for the last couple weeks, you know the parking lot, the kids' ministry, and this room in particular is starting to fill up. So if we stay here, we could start turning people away, but here's what I think. I think there's a whole lot of people left in Anne Arundel County that need to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I would love to be the church God uses to get them. So we're going to make room for them. That's why we're adding a second service. Why would we do that on Sunday, December 5th, Pastor Ryan? I'm so glad you asked. On December 5th, we are beginning a a brand new series that we're going to end this year off with and actually begin uh, 2022 with uh, that I'm super excited about. The the, uh, title of the series is going to be called Belief in the Age of Skepticism. There's two very specific purposes for this series. Number one, first and foremost, the goal of this series is to provide you, Christian, with confidence about why you believe what you believe and why it's really reasonable to do so. So my hope through every week of that series and through the series as a whole is that you leave with a stronger, stronger, more confident understanding of why Christianity is worth dedicating your entire life to. That's the first goal of that series. The second one is to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that engages skeptical people. And so with that series, I don't know that I've ever explicitly asked you to do this before, even though I do hope we're always thinking like this, but specifically for that series, we are asking you all to invite your skeptical friends, family members, neighbors, and coworkers to join us for that series. And in in asking you to do that, uh, we got to make some room for them. So that's a great time for us to go uh, to two services. So that's the first announcement. We're going to two services on, on um, December 5th. Here's the second announcement. We need help. <laughs> uh, for, a, for over a year now, we have been um, running this church with basically a skeleton crew of really amazing and incredibly dedicated volunteers. They need your help, and I need your help if we're going to do this. And so um, to accomplish that end, two Sundays from now, On November 21st, right after our service, we're going to have an interest meeting about the launch of this second service. And at that meeting, I'm going to real briefly explain why we exist as a church, what it means to volunteer at this church, uh, why it's worth it to volunteer in Jesus' church, and then right at the end of that meeting, you're going to get a chance to meet with all the team leaders whose teams are operative on Sunday morning and uh, find a team that's for you and sign up right then and there. And so I'll just state this as plainly as I know how to. If you love this church, if you've been blessed by this church, if you believe in this church, I'm personally asking you, please serve this church. We need your help. And I am totally confident 
Um, we have just begun to see what God is capable of doing through men and women as we dedicate our lives to him and his mission. Amen? All right, final thought here. Uh, there are a whole lot of churches that over the last 19 months just didn't make it. And here we are today, and our biggest challenge is figuring out how to adopt and, and um, uh, adjust to the growth that God continues to bring us. I think that's pretty amazing. As far as challenges, I'll take that challenge. Amen? Amen. So, interest meeting 1121 and uh, two services, December 5th. I hope to see you there. Um, now back to your regularly scheduled program, all right? Welcome to week two of our series called uh, Remember. Uh, the goal of this series is remarkably simple. We want you to leave these services more encouraged than you were before you got here, period. I was uh, literally on the phone with somebody this morning, and uh, I was just reminded all over again, I don't know that it's ever been impressed so clearly on me that people are in desperate need for encouragement. That's the whole aim of this series. And so like David Brower uh, mentioned last week when he kicked off the series, um, the anchor text for this next five weeks is uh, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5, which is a prayer that David prayed, not David Brower, that's King David. David Brower did not write the Bible. Uh, it's a, it's a, I was hoping that joke would get a few chuckles. I did it. I did it, Dave. I got you. Um, Psalm 103, 1 through 5 is, is a prayer written by David that's designed to get his own heart to remember the benefits of ours that we have through a relationship with God. There's five specific benefits that are listed. And so over the, this five-week series, we're looking at each one of those benefits. We're choosing to dwell on it, to meditate on it, to let it change us, uh, and hopefully to encourage us. So, so one more time, let me read Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. It says, My soul praise Yahweh, and all that is within me praise his holy name. My soul praise the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Today, we are, we are looking at, and we're going to spend all of our time on this second benefit here, that God heals all our diseases. Now, um, this topic is not particularly easy to navigate simply because this benefit is not the same as the other benefits listed in Psalm 103. Um, here's what I mean there. Last week when David was talking about God forgiving all of our sins, that is something that literally, legally, objectively happens to anyone who gives their life to Jesus the moment they give their life to Jesus. There's no probationary period. It's not an allegory or a metaphor. The moment you come to God with a posture of heart that says, Father, accept me on the basis of what Jesus has done, in that moment, in the high court of God's justice, your sins are forgiven and will never be held against you again, period. That's good. We probably just end right there, to be honest with you. But I got about 30 minutes to make sense, so just bear with me here. My point is it, it doesn't exactly work that same way with God healing our diseases. And, and all I mean there is that as, as many figures in Scripture would attest, and many of us today would personally attest, it's not as though if you give your life to God and you live a life that honors Him and you pray really hard and you have enough faith, He's, he's going to heal all of your diseases. And, and frankly, even if God does decide to miraculously heal some of us during this lifetime, one of the very few things that we're guaranteed in this life is that it will eventually come to an end. 
And so that leaves us with the question, what does it mean that God heals all of our diseases and how should that promise be understood? And so here's how we're going to come at this today. We're going to look at the story of a man in Scripture who was physically healed by God. And I want to I, I dig into that story, <coughs> and I want to explain how it, um, how it shows us about ourselves, uh, our Savior, and our hope. So I'm going to be in, in Acts chapter 3. It'll be verses 1 to 8, and then 13 to 21. Let me go ahead and read that. It says, Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. Imagine that. Look at us. Verse 5, so he turned to them, expecting to get something from them, and get something he did. Verse 6, but Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood, and started to walk, and he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Let's go down to verse 13, where Peter preaches a sermon to the crowd that gathered in light of this miracle. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. And we'll end here in verse 21. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. This is God's word. This miracle in a lot of ways is typical of of really, you could say every other miracle recorded for us by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. And so what's really neat about this one is that if we can get a grasp of this, and what it's trying to teach us, and how we're to understand it, then you'll really be able to have a decent understanding of every other miracle in the New Testament by Jesus or the apostles. And so what I want to do today is look at this story um, and and pull out from this how this story, first off, points us to the depths of our need, secondly, to the healer we need, thirdly, to the hope that we need. And so we're going to look at Um, the man in this story who was in need of healing and how he points us to the depths of our need. We're going to look at the men who performed the miracle in this story, Peter and John, and how they point us to the healer that we need. And then we're going to look at the way Scripture describes the condition of this man after he was healed and how that points us to the hope that we all need. And, And just one more time before we get into this, I just thought this was worth saying, teaching on this topic is really hard for me. And one thing that was really impressed on me over and over as I was putting this teaching together 
is that there's going to be a lot of people that listen to this teaching who you either have experienced physical suffering or you are experiencing physical suffering right now that in a, in a lot of ways, purely because of God's grace, I know nothing about. And so I feel to a degree like I'm walking on holy ground here. And so just, you know, before we get into this, I'm just, I'm asking you to hear the heart behind this message that, that my hope for this teaching specifically is that my words would be wise that they would be comforting, and that they would be encouraging. And I know that they will be as long as Ryan does not get in the way of Jesus, which that's kind of my job description anyway. Don't get in Jesus' way. That's what I'm going to go for today. So I have three ideas for us, and with that, we're going to get right into the first one. Number one, it's that miracles point us to our deepest need. This miracle story does that as well as every other miracle story that you find in the New Testament. This story, when you zoom out from it, what's clear is that this is not about a man who was unable to walk being given the ability to walk. This is the story of a man who was given a brand new kind of life that he wasn't even asking for. And, and to understand uh, what, I, what I mean there, I want to focus first off on the condition of the man in this story. Scripture tells us two very important things about him. Number one, we know that this man was not lame from an injury, he was lame from birth. That is highly significant because in Jesus' day, there was a common belief that if you were born with brokenness in your body, that was evidence that God's judgment rested on you. And so therefore, you were not permitted to enter the temple in order to worship God the way that he had prescribed worship was supposed to be done, which is why in this story, you see that this man was begging outside the temple gate. And you notice when he's healed, uh, what's the very first thing that he does? I I'm just going to tell you, he does not do what you would have done. What you would do if you were in this man's uh, condition, he says that he was over 40 years old. For 40 years old, he he'd been paralyzed. What you would do if you were healed after more than 40 years of that life is you'd run right to your friends or you'd run right to your family to celebrate. That's not what he does. What he does is he runs right into the temple. Why? Because that was the very first time in his life that he was able to do that. So this is the picture of a man that for over 40 years, he's been separated from God physically. He's been separated from him mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You could even say psychologically. But the second thing that we see about this man that's really worth noting is that he's asking Peter for money. Now, the reason that's worth dialing in on is because this man was not a traveling man. He's been in or around Jerusalem his entire life. <coughs> Here's what that means. Over the last four years, he, there's no way he would not have heard about all of the miraculous healing stories that had taken place by both Jesus and the apostles in and around Jerusalem over four years. And yet, here he is, he's not even asking for that. All he's asking for is money, and then Peter approaches him and very famously tells him in verse 6, he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. And for the very first time in this man's life, he walks. And so what you have here in this story is a man who's ready to settle for an, uh, a temporary improvement upon or distraction from his old life when what Jesus was ready to give him through Peter was a brand new life altogether. And when you understand that, you have to understand that this lame beggar in this story is really a picture of all of us. Because scripture says that the moment that sin entered the world, this lie has passed very deeply into every human heart, in your heart, and mine, that we know what it takes to satisfy us. 
that we know what it takes to really make us happy, and we always tend to believe that whatever that thing is, it lies outside of rather than inside of God's will for our life. That's the lie that derailed Adam and Eve and all of us ever since. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this quote. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that never, ever works for us. And the reason for that is because you and I gravely underestimate what it actually takes to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And what this story is first and foremost showing us is that we need something much more than a temporary improvement upon or distraction from our lives. What we need is a brand new life altogether. Or to quote Jesus, literally, we need to be born again. That and nothing less is what Jesus came to offer. And before I move on from this point, uh, I just want to highlight one thing. If you read commentaries on this verse, commentators have pointed out that this particular healing miracle um, is almost identical to a healing miracle recorded in Luke's gospel account in chapter 5, where it's Jesus who heals a paralyzed man. What's One of the things that's different about that account in Luke 5 is that just before healing the man, Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven. So he says, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him physically. And I just want to draw your attention to two implications from that. First off, because Jesus not only healed that man's sins, but also healed his body, here's what this means, and this should be so encouraging to us. This means that physical suffering matters to Jesus. It's kind of an amazing thing to me. If, if, if the only thing Jesus was concerned about was your spiritual well-being, then really the only miracle he quote-unquote had to perform during his time here is the resurrection. Yet over and over again, Jesus consistently healed people or, or, or fed people. And what that shows us over and over again is that physical suffering matters to the Son of God. That means if we claim to follow Jesus, it should matter to us too. That means that you and I should Pray for physical healing, and we should do so in the hope that it matters to God. And not only that, not only should we pray for it, but if we are the hands and feet of Jesus, his church, that means that we should work to alleviate human suffering to the absolute best of our ability. If you're new to this church, uh, you know, I hope you'll be encouraged to know that our church takes that very seriously. That is why we do things like the pop-up pantry, that's why we partner with local nonprofit organizations. It's why in just a few weeks here, we're going to transform our entire church into a shelter for people experiencing homelessness through a program called Winter Relief. And he would probably kill me if he knew I said this, but the reason Aaron Mayhew is not here today is because he's actually going to be on the field at M&T Bank Stadium being recognized for the work that our church has done through COVID in the pop-up pantry that he designed. It's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, amen, amen, amen. <coughs> And I, I can't help but thinking that in the world that we're in today, if more churches were known for that kind of thing, uh, we would be far more effective in persuading people to the truth of Jesus Christ. And, and the reason that we do that, again, is not because it generates momentum or it makes us feel good. It's because it's very obviously in line with the heart of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that you see in that, that miracle. But, but secondly, and right along with that, because Jesus healed that man's sins before healing his body, what Jesus was doing is making this statement is that what the human heart most desperately needs is to be restored to a relationship with God that is based on his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. 
Jesus was saying there that as bad as physical suffering is, that is not your and my deepest problem. Our deepest problem is that sin has separated us from God, and it's only when that problem is solved that your and my deepest needs can be met. It's only when we've been restored to a right relationship with God that our need for a hope that goes beyond the walls of this world Uh, for a satisfaction that does not depend on circumstances, for an identity that does not depend on our performance and meaning that can't be taken from us by suffering, all those needs, which is really what it means to be fully human, can only be met through a life-giving, ever-deepening relationship with our Creator. That's what Jesus came to provide. But what this story is showing us first and foremost, and if, if you know yourself at all, you have to be able to admit this about yourself, that we all think like the lame man in this story to one degree to another. And we all buy the absolute craziest lie in the universe, which is maybe more of what has never satisfied me will satisfy me, and it never does. And so the first thing that this miracle challenges us to do, that really all the New Testament miracle stories challenge us to do, is to look in, to introspect, to go deeper, to see and to understand the depths of our need. That's the first idea I wanted to offer you this morning. The second one, number two, is that miracles point us to the true healer. And now what I want to do is is look at the people who performed the miracle in this story, uh, namely Peter and John. One thing that is so noteworthy about the miracles of the New Testament, whether they're done by Jesus or his followers, is that the miracles always made the miracle workers more vulnerable. Just consider that for a moment. If you follow this story in Acts chapter 3 forward through the book of Acts, you'll find that because they performed this miracle, um, Peter and John and the entire church got in a whole lot of trouble. Get out of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, and what you'll find is that Peter and John, because of this, were brought before the Sanhedrin and threatened. Uh, On in chapter 5, Christians are thrown in jail and beaten. In chapter 6, Christians are being publicly defamed and lied about. And then in chapter 7, for the first time in history, followers of Jesus are being murdered for following Jesus. And that, you know, spiraled into what was widespread persecution of the early church throughout the Roman Empire. All of that, to some degree or another, can be traced back to this miracle that's performed right here in Acts chapter 3. And if you follow Jesus' life in the Gospels, that same thread is even more clear. Because all through Jesus' life, it's almost as though with every miracle Jesus performed, the heat got, got dialed up just a little bit more. That with every miracle he performed, yeah, he, he grew in fame but, but it, it's also true that the religious leaders grew in their suspicion of Jesus. Until you get to the end of John's gospel account, John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's after that miracle that the religious leaders conspired together and they finally said, okay, we can no longer let this man live. And so all through Jesus' life, every miracle he performed came at great cost to him personally until at the very end, in this sort of ironic twist, what you see is that saving Lazarus cost Jesus his own life. In other words, what every one of these miracles is pointing us to and sort of whispering about is the biblical concept of this thing called substitution. Now, um, it's not uncommon, you know, we're living in a, a secular age and, and one of the hallmarks of secularism is just a, a general skepticism to any kind of supernatural activity whatsoever. And so it's, it's uh, not uncommon at all. I can promise you, if you don't think this way, you have friends and, and family members that do. People have a tendency to look at the supernatural accounts in Scripture 
and just sort of lump them in with the supernatural accounts of every other belief system and just dismiss them all full stop as legends that were propagated by superstitious people that were uneducated and therefore prone to believe in those kinds of things. The reason you can't do that, <coughs> the reason that you cannot uh, lump the supernatural accounts of Scripture in with those of, of every other belief system is because when you try to do that, you're failing to see exactly how unique the supernatural accounts of the Bible are. And what I mean by that is when you look at ancient or even modern fiction and you see people with supernatural powers or literally superpowers, one thing you'll find is that their powers always make them less vulnerable. Now, to illustrate what I mean, let me just go there. If you've seen the Marvel movies, and I love Marvel movies. This is not hatred against Marvel movies. I have been through the MCU an embarrassing amount of times. But if you've seen them, you know that when Steve Rogers becomes Captain America or Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man, their powers make them less vulnerable, far less vulnerable, makes them very difficult to kill. When you look at the supernatural accounts of, of Scripture and you look at the miracles of Jesus and his apostles, but specifically Jesus, what you'll find is that the exact opposite is the case. Their miracles actually made them more vulnerable rather than less. Uh, and, and what a lot of people consider to be the greatest miracle in the history of the world, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I mean, the, the, the moment that the creator of everything entered into the creation that he made, what that miracle did at its essence is it made the Son of God killable. Have you ever thought about that? Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, and yet when the infinite became an infant, which is what happened in that manger. I stole that from Charles Spurgeon. That one was not me. But what happened in that moment is that omnipotence itself experienced what it was to be subject to things like hunger and thirst and fatigue. And at the end of Jesus' life, to all of his followers' surprise, he experienced, God experienced what it was to physically die on the cross because that was the only way to raise us to life spiritually. And so the unique message of, of the gospel, the unique message of Christianity is that the power of God is now available to us, but the only reason that it's available to us is because our God was willing to become weak for us. Now, every other belief system, you, you try to compare that against, every other belief system throughout human history has offered you a strong God that demands that you summon your strength and you summon your virtue and you sort of pull yourselves up by your moral bootstraps and live this life in order to get to them, only Christianity is, is offering you and presenting to you a God that was willing to become vulnerable and a God that was willing to become killable for you. Only Christianity says that God knows what it is uh, to experience physical suffering, that God knows what it is uh, to have his body broken and that God knows what it is to physically die. And that is an incredible resource that you're never gonna find anywhere else for at least two reasons. Here's what Christianity says. Christianity says that when you experience physical suffering and the breakdown of your physical body and you begin to have to come to terms with your own mortality, regardless of how isolating that experience is, you never have to go through that alone. Why? Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, personally experienced that before you, and he did so in your place. And, and because of that, building right off of that, what this also means is that the, all your physical suffering truly has the power to do to you in Jesus 
is bring you closer and therefore make you more like him. That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, if you've given your life to Jesus, he says, you have died. You ever wonder why Paul was not afraid to die? He knew he already had. He had already been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he lived. He says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, this is a promise every follower of Jesus can, can claim, you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. That is life-changing. We could just camp out on that for the rest of our lives. So my point is that this miracle and all the New Testament miracles are all in some way, shape, or form pointing us to the healer that we need, the true healer that we need, the healer that was willing to become vulnerable for us, that we might become free from the power of death and therefore invulnerable in him. That's the second idea. But there's one more that I want to offer you before we conclude our time together. I feel like you have to, you, if you're going to talk about God healing us, you have to go here. The third idea has to do um, with what these miracles point forward to. Number three, miracles point us to our future hope. And now what I want to do uh, is look at the way that this man is described after his healing. <clears throat> In verse eight, it says, so he jumped up, stood and started to walk, and he entered the temple complex with them. Here it is, walking, leaping, and praising God. So it, he did not just walk, Luke says, the historian that compiled this account. He did not just walk, he, he was leaping. That is an incredibly significant detail. It's an incredibly significant Greek word that Luke wrote there because no reader of the Bible in Luke's day would have read his description of this man without being immediately reminded of something that God said through the mouth of his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 35 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. What Isaiah is describing there is what's going to happen when God returns to restore this broken world. And Peter's drawing the same connection here because after this miracle, a crowd forms. They want to know what's going on. And Peter uses this as an opportunity to kind of give this heavy theological explanation of what they bore witness to that day. And here's, here's how Peter described it in verse 21. He said, heaven must welcome Jesus until the times of the restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. I've had this question asked to me before. Maybe you've had it asked or maybe you've actually wondered yourself. If you study the miracles of the apostles and Jesus in the New Testament, have you ever noticed that they are never just naked displays of power? Uh, people have asked me, you know, why didn't Jesus just make it plain? You know, why didn't he just perform these feats of strength or, you know, spell his name in the sky or, you know, resurrect a dinosaur and write it around or something stupid like that so people could look at that and say, okay, there's no ambiguity. This guy's who we've been waiting for. If you read all the New Testament miracles, you'll find they never were just flexing when they performed miracles. There's, there's at least one thing that every one of the miracles had in common. Here's what it is. They always alleviated human suffering or trouble of some kind. Every single one of them whether it was turning water into wine to, say, to save a newlywed couple from embarrassment on their wedding day, or opening the eyes of a man born blind who'd been taught to believe his entire life that God hated him and that's why he was born like that. Every single one of these miracles alleviated human suffering. And the reason for that 
is because every one of those miracles was pointing forward to exactly what Peter was talking about here. Uh, It's pointing forward to the end of all things, to the end of history when God will return to restore all things. And so what every one of these miracles is designed to remind us of, and I hope this means something to you, they remind us that God didn't invent blindness. God did not invent lameness. God did not invent cancer. He did not invent suffering and loss and pain and death. None of that was a part of the world as God originally designed it. You go back to the the book of Genesis and you'll find that when God originally put us here, he designed us to exist in a perfectly harmonious relationship with himself, with each other, and with all of creation. But everything began to disintegrate and, and fall apart when we turned away from him. And so what we're being shown in this miracle What we're being shown in every miracle in the New Testament is that God is no happier with the world as it is today than you are. And someday he will return to fix everything, to end suffering and corruption and pain and death forever. That's the hope that we have in the resurrection. Now, this is a little bit of a weird thing for me to talk about. I have been on this stage before, and I have, I have used a very specific phrase when talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to you all. And what I've told you before is that the resurrection is not a consolation for a, the life that you lost. It is the restoration of the life you always wanted but never had. It's not a consolation, it's a restoration. I just want to tell you something, you know, maybe sounds strange to you. I don't feel like I ever really understood that and until last night. Last night, all the kids were, were, were asleep and I was, I was running through my teaching and I started to think about this idea that, that Isaiah says this in Isaiah 35, Peter draws the same connection here when he saw the power of Jesus, you know, raise this man and he said that, that Jesus will restore everything. Here's what that means. It means every other belief system you know, when it, when it talks about heaven or, or you know, like, like Eastern mysticism, we'll talk about, you know, at the end of this life, you know, you're like a drop in the ocean. You become one with the all soul. There's other belief systems that just talk about this kind of vague sense of, you know, a, a planet full of all this good stuff and it's going to be great. What all of those versions of the afterlife are offering you is just a consolation for the life that you've lost. And I've kind of quietly always thought about heaven that way, if I can be perfectly candid with you. And I've always wondered, yeah, but isn't there going to be part of us that's still sad for all the things that happen? down here. And, and I've kind of thought about heaven as, as God saying, you know, I'm really sorry about the, the fact that you had to see your loved ones die. I'm sorry about the friendships that ended. I'm sorry about how many more losses you had than wins and that it ended in your own death and there was anxiety and depression, and all that kind of stuff. But here's heaven, you know, and I have a good time. It's never going to end. That's not what the resurrection promises. The resurrection promises that, that God, through the power of Jesus Christ, is going to restore all of creation to the original state in which it was in before sin ruined everything. Now, here's what that means practically for you. And I hope this means something to you the way that it meant something to me last night. Here's what that means practically. Could you please take a moment and, and, and think about the time in your life when you have found yourself the happiest you've ever been, when you felt the most loved, the most alive, you've experienced the most joy, the most peace, the best parts of your life. Could you for just a moment try to recall whatever that is? Here's what the resurrection promises you, that whatever you just thought of, the, the, the greatest possible moment of your life here falls infinitely short of what every moment of existence is going to be like once God restores everything. 
That's what that means. And, and that helped me understand when Paul says in Romans 8, 18, he says, you know, I, I think about the sufferings of this present time. I don't even think it's worth comparing to the, to the glory that's going to be revealed. Can I be perfectly candid? That sounds insensitive unless you understand the resurrection like Paul understood the resurrection, like he did in Acts chapter 9 when the risen Son of God knocked him flat on his back. The only reason you can say what Paul says, because look at his life. I mean, Paul had a terrible life. Paul saw friendships end. Paul was treated unfairly. He lost years of his life to unjust imprisonment, and he was beaten, and he was robbed, and he shipwrecked, and he's bit by a snake, and he, you know, he, was, he was confined, and he was cut down in his prime and all that kind of stuff. What Paul is saying in Romans 8.18, this is the hope of the resurrection that Jesus Christ gives you, that even if everything in your life goes exactly how you wanted it to, let's say you had a great life, you know, largely free from tragedy, you die in your sleep at the age of 100, or let's say you had a terrible life, wrought with suffering, you were cut down in your prime, nothing ever worked out the way that it was. What Paul is saying that the best possible version of this life and the worst possible version of this life are the same and that they are both infinitely far from what things are gonna be like when God restores everything. So what that means for you and I, this enables us to endure suffering in our physical bodies like nothing else can because the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises you personally that before this thing is said and done, you will get the body that you always wanted but never had. It's not a consolation of, of the life that you lost. It's a restoration of the life you always wanted but never had here. You're going to get the body that you always wanted but never had. You're going to get the relationships that you all... Does anybody here have broken relationships? The resurrection says you're going to get those, the relationships you always wanted, you always needed, but you never had. You're going to get the life you always wanted, but you never had. And you're going to exist in the creation that you always longed for, but never had. And I have to believe that when we're there and we see that, the overarching impression that I'll have for probably the first hundred billion years is I'm just going to look around and think, this is what I was always looking for, even if I didn't understand what it was. I'm finally here. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, is that not amazing news? And, and so for followers of Jesus today, here's what that means, that no matter what God walks us through in this life, we hold on to the hope that one day the eyes of the blind will be opened forever. One day the ears of the deaf will be unstopped forever. One day the lame will leap like a deer forever and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy forever. And when you understand that, when that sinks into your heart and becomes the foundation of your life, that gives you the ability to withstand absolutely anything. And yeah, there's losses in this life and there's pain and we should grieve in this life. But like Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, we will be able to grieve without losing our hope the hope that every one of these miracles points forward to. Man, I'm getting some cardio in today. So let, let me call the worship team up. Just like Dave said last week, we're going to end every week of this five-week series with communion, which was a great idea that, that, that Dave came up with. And the reason for that is because communion is something Jesus gave us to help our hearts remember who he is and what he's done for us. If you've given your life to Jesus, I'm inviting you in just a few moments to take communion with us. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, I'm inviting you to give your life to Jesus because I think I've hopefully made a decent case today of why it's really amazing to have a relationship with Jesus. All right, let me just kind of focus us on this. I'll give you one final idea. Um, Within the, within the umbrella of this idea that God heals all our diseases. If you would just please lean in with me for a moment here. God heals all our diseases. Here's what this means. Wherever you're at in your faith today, 
you know, whether you are, you have this rock-solid, robust belief in everything I've talked about today or you're still figuring out this thing for yourself or, or anywhere in between, uh, here's, here's what this means. One of the things that we all have in common, everyone here, everyone listening to this has in common, is that we are right now inhabiting bodies that will eventually fail us. Some of us have bodies that are strong right now. Some of us have bodies that are already failing us in profound, life-altering ways. But I want to tell you, whether your body is strong or whether it's unable to do the things that you wish it could do, I hope you remember for just the next few minutes before we take communion that there is no injury, there is no illness, there is no ailment that the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot fix. Let, let me read Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5, and we'll take a moment to reflect. My soul prays Yahweh. And all that is within me, praise his holy name. My soul, praise the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Let us remember for just a few moments that our God heals all our diseases. Amen. We're going to get ready to take communion together. When Jesus instituted communion, the night that he was betrayed and he was with his disciples, communion as it's now known, it was the Lord's Supper then, when he offered the bread, he said that this bread represents his body that's broken for us. So as we take this bread, I want to invite you to remind your own heart that we worship the bread of life, the man who was called the bread of life, come to be broken so that broken people could be made whole in him. Let's take the bread. Jesus said that this cup represented his blood that was spilled for us. And so as we take the cup, I want to invite us all to remember that salvation has been made available to absolutely everyone, but that salvation, though free to us, came at infinite cost to our Savior. That salvation is purely available to us because of the spilt blood, the sacrifice of King Jesus. Let's take the cup. Let me pray for us, and we'll finish with one final worship song. Father God, thank you that you are a God who heals. Thank you that this life that we've always known is not the life that we're, in, we're doomed to. It's not the life we were originally designed for, and that you're coming back and you're going to fix it. And when you do, Father, by grace through faith in the name of your Son, Jesus, we're going to find what our hearts have always longed for every moment of our lives. We're going to find the love and the peace and the joy and the healing and the wholeness that at least a part of us knew we didn't have here. Thank you that it's available through Jesus. God, please help us to be a people of hope that remember, remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it means for us, that one day we will be restored our relationships will be restored. This whole earth will be restored and it'll never be taken from us again. Please cause that to become real to us until it gives us the ability to walk through anything you see fit to walk us through as people of hope for your glory and our joy. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.